Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an, an, an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, check out their website, NPTEFF.com. And use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. I love the idea of having some faculty development, but, but it's, it's funny. I was just having this conversation with my lab assist the other day on the fact that only 50% of my job is to actually teach. The other 50% is research, is service to the, you know, students and, and to the university, is getting involved in the community, right? Like. Like you said, it comes, it becomes a matter of time. You can't possibly be good at every single one of those aspects. You just can't, you can be good at maybe two of them. Right. And so why not let the professors choose the ones they want to be good at and lean into and then help and, and assist and find ways to, to beef up those other areas where maybe they can't be as, you know, dedicated. So I, you know, I think it's a good uh, answer to that. Yeah. The art of teaching is something that I'm currently having to go through and struggle with right now. I'm trying to learn my own style and craft my own style, but truth be told, the lecture and creating all that stuff and the information, I would much rather have somebody smarter, more well-educated, more, you know, with more expertise, do that part and talk about that part. And then me just come in and say, all right, now here's what I've learned in my 15, 16 years of clinical application. Here's how that part applies to, to this patient scenario, right? Like things like that. I am very rarely the smartest guy in the room and, and I like it that way. Again, a little bit of it is putting the ego at the door, but if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room, right? I, I, I like to learn from these people. I like to, to spotlight them and put them up front because they've done the work. They've been there. They've, you know, they've established expertise and authority. And that's, to me, that goes a long way. And, and again, let's take it to the other side. I learn from my students, you know, so, so I, I have no shame in taking an approach of every opportunity as a chance for me to learn. Right. So, so I think this really encompasses all of that, you know? And think for one second about what you do right now to prepare for content. Okay. So what do you do to, to create those PowerPoints that you deliver and prepare for your lecture? You go to the textbooks, you go to the research, you read articles. Then you consolidate all that information to a cogent PowerPoint presentation that you deliver in person to your students. You are becoming smarter, Scott, every time you read and create it. Yes, you're becoming really smart because you're doing all of that curious investigation and, and you're putting things together. When we provide it to our students on a silver platter already in the Reader's Digest version, which is what we do. I mean, let's face it, when we create a lecture, we've done all the work, we've gotten way smarter. That lecture alone is not what makes our students smarter. We know that from the literature and the science of learning. What makes them smarter is to apply it, to think about it, to manipulate it, to use it, and then, and then keep using it, right? Keep touching it and applying it and putting things together. So I, I like to say that faculty are kind of hooked into a system that keeps making them smarter. And then they wonder, well, why didn't my students get this? We, we stole, we stole all the smartness. We, we... Yes. 
we, um, we rob them of that that enriching experience by doing all the work for them. Right. And and I will say that, you know, from a student perspective, I, I alluded to this earlier, that there are a lot of ben- benefits to students. And I would say that where our heart came from starting this program was when we got our advisory board together, as we said, what should the DPT of the future be able to do, think, and be, right? What kind of a person do we want? And we identified we wanted them to be master adaptive learners, people that know when they need to dig more. We want them to be um, compassionate moral agents that really understand that as a healthcare professional, we have a moral obligation to society. And that's all of society, not not our little bubble, but understanding social determinants of health, understanding that there is not equity in healthcare, nor is there equity in many things in this world. And if if we don't embed that in the curriculum and place that as part of the outcomes and objectives of our, of our student, we're doing society wrong. Um, we also identified that, you know, weighing um, evidence with ambiguity, of course, being person-centered practitioners, but also understanding the role of health prevention, and all of disease in society, not just acute disease, but chronic disease as well, and our role in prevention. So we create, we, we asked what should they be, and from that we came up with outcomes, and from that we created the curriculum. We didn't create the curriculum before we, we said what did we think we wanted students to be. But for students, a flexible curriculum where you either flip the classroom or it's hybrid provides more opportunities for traditionally um, underrepresented individuals who A, might learn differently, B, might have different times where they're better at learning because they have other demands or maybe they have to work or just anyone. You know, you mentioned we all have different learning needs, right? So if I'm a quick learner, I'm going to go through those videos, do those you know, knowledge checks, go through them. If I'm someone that needs repetition, I go back and I just have to watch a 15-minute segment, not an hour of Mary Blackington talking, right? So I think asynchronous learning allows people to do that. You may not believe in it, but when you can see the faculty and they're leaning in and telling you what's important, I think it will really transform individuals. And I also think that we want a more diverse student population, but we're not going to get it if we keep teaching physical therapy education in the way we did 100 years ago. And it's not just delivery. It's not just creating hybrid. We have to change it. So one of the things we did was intentionally included diverse experts from our, you know, amazing wealth of experts in PT. But we also, we use models when we do demonstration of lab skills. We also try to have diversity in our models because I've had many students who, um, you know, a person of color who might say, you know, all of the examples are on people with white skin. But, you know, when I assess skin and somebody is, doesn't have white skin, what does erythema look like? Where do I look for, you know, signs of dehydration? So anyway, those kind of intentionality we can build that in. And then again, in our teaching, in our coaching with the university faculty, we can really help them hold on to that idea, right? Um, even, you know, grading for equity. There are 
references out there that can help us analyze our grading practices and saying, do we have any biases built into them? And, you know, I thought I was a very unbiased person, but I started reading Grading for Equity and I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and again, the entire curriculum from the, the 45% contact is built to maximize learning. You know, it's closed caption, a really high quality edited video. But the secret sauce, again, for the students is that their faculty, instead of being exhausted, like I'm sure you are, you stayed up late the night before a lecture in the lab, you got everything ready. That's not what their faculty are doing. Their faculty are going, what am I going to do with this student that's going to resonate with them? That's going to bring out the novel part of this. Um, so I, I think for students, it's really important. And, and again, as long as our profession does everything the same as we've done for 100 years, we will continue to leave certain individuals out. Yeah, that's been my mission for the last uh, year or so is just trying to create better experiences for everybody, you know, more inclusive, more, you know, knowledge-based, more curiosity-based, just better life experiences. Oh, and by the way, it's a lab, you know, like that's the lab or the class is kind of the afterthought, but it's like, hey, let's, you know, we have the ability with the sim labs and with, you know, all these great technology advancements we've had to, to really come up with some good stuff. And we even have the opportunity to, to have labs in, in places that are actual working clinics, right? We have pro bono clinics, we have partners, we have a lot of the, the best learning happens in the clinic. So if we can get more of that and, and really see real life patients, uh, and we've even had real life patients commit, you know, to the university at times too. So the more we can do that, I think, you know, the better the overall experiential learning process goes. Well, Mary, tell us a little bit about any other random benefits or, or maybe some things that have occurred that, that you didn't even expect uh, were going to happen when you started putting all this together. Any of the other stakeholders that benefited from this that, you know, maybe you didn't see was going to happen? When we developed it, again, you know, we made a commitment that, you know, we know the curriculum because we helped develop it. We share the curriculum with our collaborator and they can build on it. So our curriculum is integrated. There's not an anatomy class and a separate physiology class. But our first collaborator said, you know, we have an interprofessional anatomy class and lab and we'd like to keep it. So they, they have, right? So they're a able to tailor it. I think importantly, and they are really able to thoughtfully create and plan for integrated clinical experiences. Typically, all faculty don't know the curriculum well, but in this model, the entire curriculum is for everyone to see. It's not a secret. It's all mapped to CAPD. Um, it's mapped to the learning outcomes. It's mapped to their school learning outcomes. In that process, the director of clinical education can look at it and say, okay, what kind of early integrated experience could we do? Because we know these are important. They could actually share some of the resources with the clinical educators. So I think that part, that, that ability to really customize clinical education and do it in a really intentional way, knowing what the students are prepared for, for in that first clinical experience. Um, so that that was unexpected for me. And I think that there's still areas to grow in that, right? Because there are different models. Um, our first collaborator has their first clinical experience is after the fourth 
eight-week experience and it's a full eight weeks. So we have all of those things, all of the knowledge, skills, behaviors pre-written so that that clinical director of clinical ed can say, look, this is what our students are skilled with. And I know BCEs work really hard at communicating that to their clinical instructors, but this, this just helps them in a way that I didn't think it would. Another surprising thing is you, you were talking about how much you learn from your students. Well, as being the person who really meets the most with the program director of our collaborators, I've learned so much by speaking with him and working with his faculty because I have this idea, but they are the people that are doing it, right? And that goes back to the potential to you know, generate educational research either individually as a team, but also as we add other collaborators, we could collectively um, do that. And the third thing I would say surprises me is that we told all of our experts who are teaching, here's the maximum number of hours you have because we do not want to go over that 45% contact hours. And that's because we don't want to be considered an adjunct in their program, right? And we thought, oh boy, you know, our experts are going to want to fill, fill, fill more and more and more. But surprisingly, they've actually did exactly what our intention was, is they are creating the need to know lectures and labs, not the nice to know. So yeah. in many, but the interesting thing is that people aren't overfilling um, what I expected. In fact, it's been a little on the underside, which is not a problem because it leaves more time for the university faculty to bring it alive. It leaves more time for the students. You know how it is. Sometimes you have students put things together. All right. Um, compare and contrast the central versus peripheral nervous system. It could be a short activity that happens in class. You discuss it. Um, so that part really surprised me. And it, it really does my heart good because our intention was to really make the curriculum lean from the background content with the ability of the faculty in the classroom to say things like, so what if this was an 86-year-old? Or what if this person uh, was also on three liters of oxygen, right? You can do all of that because you have the time. As much as I wanted to do that when I was in a traditional world, I ran out of time, right? I spent all my time lecturing. All right, here's how to do the lab skills. The trick still will be this, though. If you've worked in a hybrid program, you cannot, or a flipped classroom, you cannot assign students to watch things and then be okay with them coming unprepared to class. And what has to happen, the folks in our first program know this, the minute someone comes unprepared, they don't participate. The goal is not to reteach everything. The goal is to use your face-to-face -face time to be the coach, be the mentor, be the experienced curator. and people that haven't watched the lectures or watched the demonstrations, well, they can't apply because they haven't seen the background. So one other area that has really been a benefit of In Tandem is that it truly aligns with the six pillars of excellence that is being promoted by both ACAP and the Academy. And I can speak to each of those pillars and, and how it relates to In Tandem because I think we all need to lean into excellence in physical therapist education or why do it, right? So one of the six pillars is accessibility of education. And 
as I mentioned, we can't assume that people driving to a university five days a week and parking and doing all those things is the best way for all individuals, including historically underrepresented, to access education. So providing at least part of the learning that's done in a way that can be accessed anywhere by any person, assuming they have internet, which is not always a given, but it really does increase access to education. Um, the other thing it does is the another pillar is about collaboration and networks. And as mentioned, if you really think about the idea of a group of universities using a similar curriculum, but having some distinct differences based on their mission and vision and core values, it allows to collaborate on research, but it also allows us to collaborate with our clinical educators. So a good example of that might be that if a student's struggling in the clinic, we have the background curriculum that can be shared with the clinical educator. We can talk about, you know, what are the areas that they need to review before going back to get to competency. Um, So that collaboration is, is importantly between universities, but also between the university and clinical educators. Um, A third pillar is competency-based, and we, we touched on that. Competency-based education is a time commitment. And my experience in higher education is there is less and less time because more and more is expected of you. So by providing this collaborative support in many areas, including that 45% of contact hours, it provides the time for faculty to prepare students to, to be assessed in areas of competence which then translates into better competence in their clinical experiences. The fourth pillar is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I probably have mentioned that a few times, but many students say it's difficult for me, even when I get in a program, because I don't see other people like me. My faculty don't look like me. They don't have a culture similar to me. And we purposely embedded diversity, both in the people that teach the models that we use, as well as the content. So in our integumentary content, we ask the expert to talk about differences in um, wound, what it, what they appear like, especially in the early stages and in persons of color versus those who are not. Yeah, I taught the wound care and intake course for, for our university and the textbook and a lot of the examples are predominantly white skin, right? Yeah. And and there's a special textbook out there that that shows different versions of the skin color, but that had to be created just recently. It's not hasn't been around that long, uh, you know, and that was a great resource for me. So I know that that's that's a big deal, you know. Yeah, it really is. And not well, not just for persons of color, but also for physical therapists that are going to work with a very diverse society with all kinds of shades from white um and darker and darker. And, and, and we have to be exposed to it to be comfortable with it, right? And be accurate in it. If I'm not recognizing, you know, you, you don't look for cyanosis necessarily in the, in the color of the fingers. You look in the eye to look for cyanosis, especially in people of color. So there's so many things to make us better clinicians, right? To work in a more diverse world. The fifth pillar is educational research. and Again, the ability to have the time to do educational research, how great would it be is if you picked up 
the Journal of PT Education and Academic Medicine and other journals and really learned the story about focusing on the applied learning experience, like you going to do the um, fall screen, you know, balance screenings and things like that. What if that's what our rich evidence was um, and not just focused on predictors of licensing exam success? <laughs> I say that that was my uh, dissertation, by the way. Honestly, I think what's important are the experiences. And um, a guy named Alexander Aston, I don't know if you ever read him in your educational program, but he said, we should pay attention to the outcomes of education, but we can't ignore the experiences that lead to those outcomes. And that's what I think the power of this is. And last but not least, and something I really didn't talk about, the last pillar of excellence is looking at infrastructure capacity and faculty development. And while I talked about how in tandem really is designed to coach faculty, um, I think it will help us build infrastructure. I mean, quite honestly, there are not enough faculty to go around. And so decreasing the number of faculty that have to be there in order to you know, implement the curriculum is a feature of in tandem. Not why it was designed, but that decreasing the demand for that full-time employee with full-time benefits, et cetera, et cetera, that, that's, that drives the cost of PT education out. And we, we haven't talked about it, but one of our goals is to decrease the cost. But that's really the sixth pillar and something that we feel passionate about. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I think that, you know, as the years go on here, you'll really see some enriching development into those pillars too. So, yeah, excellent. we'd love to be part of that too. So all of those things, I think, are, are some of what I would say are the most important learning lessons. Yeah, I love that. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time and for coming on to educate us about this uh, interesting new opportunity. I love asking our final question, especially to people who've been on the uh, podcast before, because we get to kind of see, has their answer been the same? Has it changed? Has it adapted? But the final question, as you know, is if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change? How would you change it and why? I forgot about that question. And probably it's better because I'm going to speak more from the heart than, than something I've thought about. So I would change faculties understanding and ability to work more on engaging activities and not on lecture delivery. And I would do it very similar to the way we do it. I would have a coaching model of faculty development. And, you know, just like students don't learn from the lecture alone, faculty don't learn just by going to a course. You have to be able to ask questions about it. And, oh, look, I, I came up with this idea, you know. And I think the way to do that, you know, one way to do it would be to have um, more programs, of course, I'm biased, but I would love to see more collaborators with us, whether it be a new program or a program that wants to change and blow up their existing curriculum. I think that partnering with a futuristic model of PT education is a way to to change much easier than trying to blow than all 260 programs blowing it up themselves, right? So that's it. That I love that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Um, where can people reach out to you if they have follow-up questions or they just want to learn more about in tandem and what you're working on, uh, you know, on the internet and uh, social media and whatnot, where can they find you? 
Okay, great. Thanks for asking that. So my email is a great way to reach me. It's m.blackinton, so it's B-L-A-C-K-I-N-T-O-N, at rehabessentials.com. And if you want to look at more information about In Tandem, you can go to In Tandem, E-N-T-N-D, oh boy, E-M, dpt.com. That is, and that's how, if I spelled it wrong or said it out loud wrong, um, F Scott. Yeah, we'll put it all, all the links will be in the show notes so people can find them easily. Right. And, um, I, I'm, I'm not on social media a lot right now. And, um, that's a whole nother podcast. So we can talk about that. Um, but I would just say, if you're curious, reach out, um, I'm going to give you my phone number because I I'm so, I feel so passionate about it. So my phone number is 813-682-7445. But if you want to text me, tell me who you are and say, I'd love to chat about this. You know I'm going to love to talk about it. Well, again, Mary, absolute pleasure chatting with you and getting to catch up. Uh, thank you again so much for your time and for coming on to, to educate our audience a little bit about the new models in PT education. Thank you again for all you do for, for the profession. And uh, like I said, I, I just can't thank you enough for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you so much. And thanks for doing what you're doing um, in transforming how I look at PT education. Appreciate you. Yeah, no problem. Hopefully, hopefully we can keep up the, the good work. We've got a lot of experience behind us now. So hopefully the uh, momentum will just keep picking up and we'll just keep steamrolling down the hill and figure out how to change the world little by little, you know? Yep. And you're doing it. So thank you for that. And thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it.